Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, your host, and this is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week I have a guest and we have a conversation about the fullness of the faith in the Catholic Church. Sometimes we talk to theologians, we talk to writers, we talk about Catholic literature, Catholic art, architecture, music. We talk to those involved in the social work of the Church, and in many ways we share the joy and enthusiasm we have for our Catholic faith. Today, my guest is a convert to the Catholic faith. She is also an iconographer and a mosaicist, an artist, and a writer. My guest is Ruth Ballard, co-author of What the Saints Said About Heaven, with her husband, Richard Ballard, and well-known author, Rhonda Chervin. Welcome to More Christianity. Thank you, Father. It's great to be here. Ruth, you have come into the Catholic Church from a Lutheran background. You were actually an ordained Lutheran pastor yourself. Can you give us just a nutshell why you decided to make that decision. In the Catholic Church, both my husband and I found the fullness of Christianity. We came in for theological reasons. There was for us a completion of a spiritual journey. So you were moving that direction within your Lutheran ministry. You would call it being high church Lutherans, very Catholic in your understanding, and then you finally took that step into full communion with the Catholic Church. Yes. During that time when you were a Lutheran pastor, were you interested in art and iconography at that time? Interestingly enough, I became interested in iconography specifically because we commissioned a set of icons for our parish. Mm -hmm. These were icons of the Stations of the Cross. And a well-known iconographer in central Pennsylvania, where Mm -hmm. we had our parish, came and wrote those icons for us. Up until that point, I had no experience with art whatsoever. I should say, uh, when you said that she wrote the icons, that's a little bit of jargon, isn't it? Yes, it is. So when you talk about writing an icon, you meant she painted the icons. She painted the icons. And this well-known iconographer wrote the icons for you. So you followed along that process, and that's how you became interested in uh, icons? Yes. It brought together both a love for art that I did not know at that point I had, but I was very much attracted to the visual aspect of Mm -hmm. iconography and theology, which is my passion. So you are actually involved in painting, I should say, writing icons now. Is that correct? Yes, I am. And where did you do your training to learn how to write an icon? I spent seven years studying with this particular iconographer, Jody Cole. Mm -hmm. I also had experience with Peter Pearson. I worked on an iconostasis in the Hazleton area with him, and also I studied with some Russian iconographers in the D.C. area. So an icon in this particular sense is what we're referring to as the Eastern form of uh, religious art, Christian art. What is some of the theory behind it? Iconography is very much a stylized form of art using a Byzantine influence. Mm -hmm. It's first and foremost liturgical art. Its focus is not merely to depict biblical characters or scenes or to illustrate the life of a particular saint, although it does that, but its main purpose is to draw one into an experience of those things and ultimately of God himself. Okay, so what you're saying then is it's not merely an illustration. Correct. Okay. 
compare it to the illustrations you might have in a children's Bible story book. You open up and there's a wonderful picture, an exciting picture of David perhaps killing Goliath or something. <laughs> That's an illustration in a book. Correct. You're saying if there were an icon of David killing Goliath, it would look very different because it's trying to do something different. Right. It is actually a vehicle through which we encounter the divine. We encounter God actively through an icon. Really, this is astounding. So what you're saying is that an icon is kind of like a window into the supernatural realm. It's intentionally, therefore, stylized and in a very traditional manner. Are we supposed to feel uncomfortable when we look at it? Is that part of the process? Yes, most definitely. Right. So when we look at it, it takes us into another way of looking, another way of seeing. We are a little bit jolted from our normal way of looking at reality. Exactly. And that's part of the experience that we're supposed to have. Yes. It brings us into realities that we do not normally encounter. So, yes, it's supposed to sort of wake us up mm -hmm. and bring us into the supernatural realm of God. Do those who use icons in worship, therefore, and in prayer, do they believe uh, that certain icons do this better than other icons? Well, there are certainly icons that might appeal to one more mm -hmm. than others. For me, the icons of Mary and the Christ child bring me much closer to God in, in my personal devotions. And so you would use these in prayer by being in a state of prayer and gazing on the icon, and this is supposed to help you to enter more deeply into the mystery that's there? Is that, is that the yes. idea? You open yourself up to the working of the Holy Spirit. And through the visual aid, the colors, the line, the composition, one is drawn into a closer relationship to God. Okay, so in a way, this is a kind of visual form of the rosary, if you like. The it rosary is. is something where we we pray and we we meditate on certain mysteries in the Gospels, and this meditation process takes us into a closer identification and experience of these things. You're saying that an icon, if you like, is a prayer aid that does a similar sort of thing, but visually. Yes, exactly. That's a very good comparison to make. Mm -hmm. Now, this theory that icons are used in prayer, how did this develop? And how does it relate to the obvious questions that some people might ask? Are you supposed to use images? Are you supposed to have statues? Doesn't the Ten Commandments forbid making graven images and so forth? The whole use of icons developed very early in church history. In fact, if you go back to the ancient catacombs in Rome, you can see iconographic images on the walls there. Mm -hmm. They have depictions of Christ the Good Shepherd, Mary enthroned with Christ sitting on her lap, mm -hmm. um, talking about the, the queenship of Mary. They have symbols that are often used in icons presented on the walls there in the catacombs. Let me be devil's advocate for a minute, yes. Ruth. and. Say we've gone back to the catacombs, we see these images like frescoes that are still on the walls. Well, come on, how do we know they weren't just decoration? How do you know that's really Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and Mary? Maybe it's just a painting of a lady and a shepherd and decoration. How do we know that it's actually the sort of mystical icon that you're talking about? Icons follow a particular pattern. Mm -hmm. There are canons that regulate the use of icons, how they are composed, um, how they are painted colors. When you look at an icon that is painted today, mm -hmm. written today, they will resemble those of very early times. So 
In the same way that we trace the image of our Lord, he looks a certain way. Certainly. He has the long hair, he has the beard, he has the two fronds of hair on his forehead, he has a little frown. All of those typical depictions of Jesus Christ, which actually then roll over into Western art, you're saying were written, you called them canons. In other words, there's set rules, laws, set yes. ways, and set laws of writing an icon which continue right down to the present day. Is, is yes, that correct. Certain colors for certain characters and things like that? And that's the whole point mm -hmm. of iconography. It's not to create something new, but to carry on the tradition and to reveal spiritual truths mm -hmm. that are constant, that do not change. And so the iconography from the Eastern tradition is really a an ancient art form, and you're contending that it goes right back to the catacombs? Yes. I know there's an ancient tradition of iconography in not just the Eastern Church, but in the North African Church, in the Coptic Church, for instance, as yes. well. Does the ancient Coptic art in Northern Africa and in Egypt and Ethiopia, does that coincide with the Eastern art? Is there a continuity there? There is a continuity in composition. Mm -hmm. However, the images may look a little different, reflecting cultural differences. Mm -hmm. There are different traditions in the Greek church and the Russian church. Are you saying that the early tradition of iconography in the church, which you see in the catacombs and other places, that there's a direct step-by-step -step progression towards the iconography which we have today? It is a continuation of that tradition. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that it is an evolution because that denotes change. Mm -hmm. Again, as I said before, the purpose is to carry on a stable tradition. But within that, you can see differences of styles. Certainly. You can see differences in, of, of methods and differences of materials within a certain range. There is development. There is growth within the tradition. Yes, in that each icon may reflect the writer's particular style of creating an icon and the cultural influence. However, there is great consistency within icons themselves. So if you look at an icon from the 11th century, let's say, it is going to look much, much like one that is written in the 21st century. But they're experts who can tell you the difference. Yes. Okay. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today is Ruth Ballard. She's the co-author of the book, What the Saints Said About Heaven. A lot of your icons actually feature in that book, I think, as illustrations to the book. Ruth, when we're talking about icons, what do you say to the perhaps non-Catholic Christian who has a problem with images in church at all? In other words, reads what they call the second commandment, you shall not make to yourself any graven image, and says, you Catholics, you're, you're, you're worshiping statues, you have idols in your church that says, don't make any graven image, you've got carved images, you've got these stations of the cross, you've got all these paintings and frescoes, you're contravening God's word. Well, actually, within the history of iconography, there were similar controversies. Mm -hmm. We call those the iconoclastic controversies. Iconoclastic meaning breaking icons. Right. Mm -hmm. And an emperor, Emperor Leo III, indicated that icons were a form of paganism. So let's put this in a historical context. Emperor Leo III, he's the emperor of the Byzantine Empire. Correct. Based in Turkey, right. in Constantinople. Right. And what sort of date are we talking about? He issued an edict in 730. So in the 8th century, in the right. 700s, Emperor Leo is confronted with people who are saying – 
destroy all the icons? Right. He wanted to purify the empire, and in his mind, to do so were to destroy the icons. He wanted to garner the favor of God in doing so. And of course, this controversy led to a great deal of destruction. One account said that the streets of Constantinople actually glowed for days with the icons that were set afire. That were being burned. Yes. At that point, was Christian art simply two-dimensional with painted icons, or had they already developed statuary and low relief and carvings and, and so forth? That was more a part of the West at that point. The Eastern Church had kept it a two-dimensional form. So now, by the seven hundreds, you're saying that they changed their mind. Correct. Right. The emperor decided that this was something that should not be continued within the Byzantine Empire. And why was that? Were there other external pressures that he felt, or did he just have it in his heart that he shouldn't have icons anymore? He thought it was a judgment of God that the Islamic forces were threatening the Byzantine Empire,、mm-hmm. and so as a result, again, he wanted to gain God's favor and protection. Right. So there he is as the emperor of the Eastern Empire. He's feeling pressure at this time from the the Muslim hordes that are pressing、right. in, and who are, of course, Islam is firmly against any kind of image at all. And I suppose it's a logical conclusion. The Emperor Leo is saying God must be on the side of the Muslims who don't like images. We've got images. We better get rid of them, or they're going to sw- the exactly. Lord's the Lord's forces of Islam are going to run us over. Right. So there was a political motivation to、yes. it as well. So how was it all resolved? Because we, obviously we have icons now in both the east and in the west. What happened? There were two waves of persecution that occurred、mm-hmm. at the very end of this cycle. Empress Theodora issued a proclamation. She was co-regent of the Byzantine Empire in the mid 800s,、mm-hmm. and she indicated that to have icons is not, in fact, paganism. But is something that is to be desired and required、mm-hmm. because of the incarnation of Christ, and she relied a great deal on the writer John of Damascus in her formulation of this idea. So the iconoclastic controversy wasn't just a matter of Emperor Leo being frightened of the Muslims and saying, "Let's throw all the icons on the fire." It actually became a, a theological debate. Yes, and it was a debate, if I understand as well, between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, that the West was in favor of icons. Is that correct? And the East was not. Yes, you had a development of art in the West,、mm-hmm. starting with icons, and then further along in history, other types of art. However, you've always had in the West those certain groups, especially after the Protestant Reformation. Who interpreted Genesis twenty-four in a way that would exclude any images、mm-hmm. from a church setting? So we have our iconoclasts today as well. Yes, we do. Okay. Now going back to the iconoclasm controversy and the theological issues that were there, what interests me about this is how the Holy Spirit uses a particular controversy, a particular fight within the church. Very often, to come to a new resolution and a new understanding and a new development in our understanding of our faith. You mentioned Saint John of Damascus. He was a, a monk and a theologian at the time. What did he come up with theologically, which actually helped us to come to a clear understanding? 
I think this can be reflected in one of his very profound quotes. Let me read that. It's a very short passage. But now when God is seen in the flesh, conversing with men, of course, referring to the incarnation, I make an image of the God whom I see. I do not worship matter. I worship the creator of matter who became matter for my sake, who willed to take his abode in matter, who worked out my salvation through matter. Never will I cease honoring the matter which wrought my salvation. I honor it, and there the Greek is dulia, I Mm -hmm. honor it, but not as God. So, St. John of Damascus is making really a very profound theological point. He's saying that God the Son, second person of the Trinity, came to this earth and took matter upon himself. Correct. And therefore, a representation of Jesus or the saints through a carving of wood or a painting with oil and paint is able to be venerated, not worshipped, but honored because it represents God who himself took matter. Yes. Exactly. And took matter and proclaimed it good at creation. Actually, it echoes back too, doesn't it, to the verse in the New Testament where St. Paul says about Jesus that he is the image of the unseen God. Correct. And the Greek word for image there, of course, is icon. Icon. So St. Paul himself says Jesus is the icon of the unseen God. And St. John of Damascus, in the quote that you just read to us, is echoing really that thought which is planted as a seed in St. Paul's writings. Yes, I cannot stress enough that to deny icons and the use of artistic means through which we can see God is to deny the incarnation. Right, because you're saying in a way that matter is bad and images are bad. You know, it made me think that the initial image of Christ imprinted on matter if you're a believer in the Shroud of Turin, there's a, a key example, even if it is not the the burial cloth of our Lord, which my instinct tells me it is. But even if it is not, still there is a powerful image of exactly what St. John of Damascus is talking about. Jesus Christ imprinting his image on matter, on a piece of linen in this case. And so in, in that way, every icon that's been produced since then is a reflection or an extension of the incarnation. Right. And if you look at both the Eastern and Western traditions, Mm -hmm. Christ himself presents the first icon, not only in the incarnation, he is the image, very image of God. Right. Because the hypostatic union, he is 100% God, 100% human, Mm -hmm. both at the same time. But also there's the tradition of Veronica's veil Mm -hmm. in the West, where Christ puts a linen to his face, the veil of Veronica gives it back to Veronica, and there is imprinted the image of God himself. Yes, and being reminded that the word Veronica itself actually is from taken from Vera Icon, Real, which true. means the true icon or the true image. True image. That's right. Uh, it and, all sort of comes together. Now, let me extend this a little bit further. We now are at the point where we're acknowledging the theology and agreeing that Jesus is the image or the icon of the unseen God. Therefore, St. John of Damascus says, because he took matter, imprinted himself on matter, if you like, images and icons are legitimate for our worship. You could say, okay, if you're a doubter, and I'm going to play the devil's advocate here again and say, okay, you can have images, therefore, of Jesus, 
What about all the images of Mary and the saints and all the rest of the images which Catholics have, the infant of Prague and St. Therese of Lisieux and all the rest of them? Isn't that going a bit overboard? It's not going overboard at all Mm -hmm. because God, through an act of grace, sanctified matter. Mm -hmm. And through these images, we are drawn closer to worshiping the one who deserves that worship, God himself. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today is author and iconographer Ruth Ballard. Ruth, let's go back to what you originally said about an icon, that it's a kind of window to the supernatural. It's a window to the spiritual realm. Window into heaven. In that case, if we're talking about an image, for instance, an image of uh, St. Therese, an image of the Blessed Mother, an image of St. Joseph, that carved image also is something which we should be using in our devotional worship. It's not just decoration in church. It's actually meant to be used for a sacred liturgical purpose. Correct. And if that's true, then what does that say about the way that Western art has developed? Because we've moved far away from the Eastern tradition of the icon with its formal, traditional, stylized imagery. And we've moved through the art of the Renaissance with its very realistic portrayals and then the art of the Romantic period, now modern religious art. What does this have to say to us about some of the modern religious art that we see in in our churches today? Modern art should, first and foremost, reflect the glory of God and be such that will lead individuals into worship of God. When one misses that point because the art is so abstract or not done well, then that art should not be used within Catholic settings. So you're saying modern art is permissible, but if it's so abstract or poorly executed or sometimes even ugly, you're saying get rid of it. Right. It always must have the goal of being a vehicle through which we worship God. In that sense, a proper icon or piece of religious art should really not be something that draws attention to itself at all. Correct. It's something that we see through rather than just looking at. Correct. One goes through the icon to the original image that it is portraying. Mm -hmm. When this is lost within modern art forms, going through that art to the one that we worship, who is God himself, when that is lost, then the art is useless. So really, the skill of the iconographer is a supreme kind of skill, because you've got to produce an icon, which on the one hand is executed with supreme skill and artwork and and craftsmanship and technique, and yet no one's supposed to recognize that. Correct. We're (laughs) We're supposed to look through all of that and simply accept the icon almost as a, in a matter-of-fact way and look through it to something greater. Yes. In fact, icons are traditionally not signed because you're not supposed to see the artist in the work. Now, that is totally contradictory to the Western, what has developed in the Western tradition, yes. where we look at a painting and say, oh, that's a Manet. Oh, that's a Van Gogh. Oh, exactly. I can see that's a Michelangelo. I can see that's a Caravaggio, where the personality of the artist has imposed itself almost completely. Yes. Would you say that Western art, as it's developed, especially in its modern secular forms, is almost, compared to iconography, it's a kind of complete contradiction or a complete opposite of what we're talking about? In my opinion, it is. I, of course, am biased toward iconography, and I wish that the church would reclaim 
the richness within iconography and use it more often because it has the theological aspect that much modern art lacks. At the same time, what I find in looking at some Eastern icons is that while they do follow this ancient tradition, there is a timelessness about them, which in, in some ways they feel very modern as well. Yes, because one art movement, with, especially within this country, is a primitive art style. And one can look upon an icon and see somewhat of a primitive style. Of the flatness of style right. and, and mm -hmm. the almost stick-like figures yes. and so forth. Yes. Right. Ruth, I want to draw this to a close. We're talking about Jesus Christ being the image of the unseen God and how icons are a mysterious window into the supernatural, a doorway into the spiritual realm. We've just been saying that they're supposed to be something which doesn't draw attention to themselves, something that you see through mm -hmm. into some greater truth or some greater experience. How do you think that reflects on our own role as individual Christians, where we're supposed to be images of Christ, icons of Christ? Well, certainly we are called to be vera icons. Mm -hmm. We are called to be the true images as Christians, to reflect Christ within our lives and to reach out to others with that visual gospel message we become the visual. We become the means. Let's extend this analogy a little bit further. We can only become the means of being a living icon when we uh, immerse ourselves, like an iconographer does, in the great tradition. Yes. Uh, when we immerse ourselves and begin to live in the great tradition that's been handed on to us for the last 2,000 years of, of how to become a follower of Christ, how to become a living icon. Furthermore, you, you're working on this icon and you're painting it with consummate skill and craftsmanship, and yet you as the iconographer are not supposed to be noticed. We're supposed to look past even all of your craftsmanship and see something greater. And isn't that what we're trying to do in the life of holiness? Exactly. In the same way you and I are trying to, to strive after the image of Christ in our lives, and so we do it day by day, laying down one more layer, painstakingly working on the image of Christ in our lives. But the ideal is so that we look past Ruth Ballard, we look past Father Dwight and see Christ. So that analogy of writing an icon I've watched as the icons have developed on your in your workshop, is to lay down one layer of paint yes. after another, after another, finally moving more and more in, into more and more detail, more and more refinement, more and more explicitness. And that also is a great analogy of the spiritual life, isn't it? Because we begin with a vague and, and general experience of Christ in our lives. And by God's grace, year by year, day by day, more and more detail is added, more and more refinement mm -hmm. is added. That whole process is symbolic of transfiguration. Mm -hmm. And so we go from sin to a more perfect union with God, from the dark to the light. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Today, I've been talking to Ruth Ballard, author and iconographer, a convert to the faith, a former Lutheran pastor. And she's been talking about icons and how we can become living images, living icons of Christ. I invite you to visit my blog and browse my books by going to my website, dwightlongenecker.com. Thank you for listening, and Ruth, thank you for being our guest. <laughs>